Father, we thank you that you are not a God who is far off, but that you are a God who has revealed yourself um, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and through your word, the Bible. Father, as we hear about from your word now and hear about your love for us, please help us to understand, help us understand that Jesus is Lord, but he also fulfills all of our desires and longings. We ask that we might understand this so that we might live for your glory. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Bible reading for today is from Mark chapter 6, verse 34 to 44. If you have a Bible, good to use it. If not, it'll be on the screen here with us too. So that's Mark 6, starting at verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, That would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. Hello everyone, my name's uh, Musa, in case you haven't uh, uh, seen me or heard me before. Um, I'd love to uh, catch up with you uh, afterwards. Uh, I want to extend the warm welcome Declan offered to you, especially if you're here uh, for the first time. Now we're talking about the topic of uh, our deepest longing. So let me begin by asking you a question. Is there something that you really want in life but you just can't seem to get at the moment? Is there something that you really want in life but you can't seem to get at the moment? Maybe you'd spend a minute talking to the person next to you about that uh, uh, if you feel unashamed about expressing to them what it is. Uh, go for it um, or at least give it some thought. Okay, that'll be enough. If you can stop those conversations. I don't want you dreaming too much. Come back. Come back. The danger with this is that your minds will start wandering off to other things. Yesterday at the public meeting, I thought I heard someone say a degree. Um, and that may be true uh, for some of you. Um, according to an article in the Huffington Post that, that, who surveyed hundreds of people asking them this very question... I'm going to give you the top five responses they came up with. There were, there were ten actually, but I'm just giving you the top, top five. The first one is um, happiness, which ought not to be a surprise. Uh, it's a general category though. 
um, of what we ultimately uh, all desire. Um, very broad, lots of specific things that we think that will make us ultimately happy. Uh, and so life is typically arranged around those very things in an attempt for us uh, to be happy. And in fact, uh, we're almost told by our whole society that that is the very thing that we ought to be pursuing in life. Parents will say to their kids, as long as it makes you happy or do whatever makes you happy. Um, because the assumption is that that is the ideal that everybody uh, is chasing after, though it remains very elusive. Secondly, money. We pursue money because although we say money can't buy me happiness, my experience tells me that money buys me a little bit of happiness, at least. I get the thing that I want, and so if I had more money, well, then I would have more happiness in my life. It only makes sense after all. But it turns out that um, we become very materialistic in the process. And in fact, in Australia, materialism is the air that we breathe. Um, if, if we have a look at the next slide, even social commentator Hugh Mackay um, uh, says in an article called uh, 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 Greed is God, he's saying that is very much the case in Australia. Uh, he says this, materialism is the religion, money is the Bible, credit cards are the prayer books. Uh, its worshippers are called consumers whose creed is buy or die. And lots of people have been observing the fact that in the past we used to have cathedrals that dominated the city landscapes. That was the place where people went to worship. But nowadays they have been replaced by the modern day cathedral called the supermarket, the shopping centre, where people flock gladly to worship the new God, greed. Thirdly, freedom. Uh, we all want to be free to do what we want, when we want, how we want. In fact, we write songs about it. But the problem is, like happiness, it's kind of not just only elusive, but worse, it's actually quite antisocial. Because our definitions of freedom usually means that what we want to do is throw off societal constraints or even the constraints that are imposed upon us by family or by friends. Um, uh, uh, most of us feel the pressure to do uh, things by these groups to, uh, that we don't want to do or to uh, do things that we don't want to do. Uh, very few people... Um, have the courage to go against every constraint in life and actually do what they want to do and stuff anybody else in the process. Those who do pursue that kind of a lifestyle end up quite unhappy anyway and usually with a trail of misery all around them. Fourthly, peace. Uh, we spoke about this uh, last week, so I, I won't um, harp on about it. In summary, we, sh we, we long for peace in the midst of a chaotic world, but we realise that uh, it, it's not there. Nation continues to fight against nation. Our society continues to have unrest. Even families, there's domestic violence. But even the closest-knit relationship, as we explained last week, has its uh, chaos, its strife, its pain uh, in it. And finally, time. We want more time. I mean, I know a number of you want more time for exams and study and assignments at the moment, but what I'm talking about, obviously, is free time. Uh, time to spend doing the things that we really want to do or time with friends and family. 
Now, I hate to break it to you, but most of you, most of us, will not find a job that makes us happy. In fact, even the people who say they love their job, it's usually about 10% of the time that they really enjoy. The other times are fairly uh, a, a, a kind of mere drudgery. But um, what, what we tend to do, therefore, is do the 9 to 5 grind during the Monday to Friday week so that we can binge on the weekend, really go to town on the weekend. Um, but our binges, you see, are never long enough. I guess some of you do that now, anyway, with your degrees, don't you? You kind of, you really work hard in order to, be, you know, uh, the art students maybe from Tuesday to Wednesday, um, and then so you can have the, um, um, But we do that, you know. We, we we try to work hard so that we can really go to town on the weekend, and but it's just never enough. And so Monday always comes around, and you're an art student Wednesday. Uh, but Monday always comes around and we're, we're really longing, dreaming of enjoying that really, really, really long weekend that we could possibly have sometime down the track. Now, I think all of us can relate uh, to these things. It's clear the article kind of says that we can. Um, and I think all of us, therefore, deep down agree uh, with Mick Jagger when he sang, I can't get no satisfaction. Though I try and I try and I try, I can't get no satisfaction. Who, by the way, said uh, this um, when uh, uh, back in 1977. No. Uh, I think he's still singing it uh, last year, uh, and he was 145, as far as I could tell. Um, yeah. Even the pop stars can't get what they want. Um, now, here, I, I just want to take you to a book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes that takes a really long, hard look at the disappointment of our experience in the pursuit of meaningless, uh, meaningfulness and uh, happiness and satisfaction in life. It's a, it's a really kind of strange book that most people are surprised to find in the Bible. And so I raise it to your attention in the hope that you might actually go home and read it for yourself and, and explore the kinds of things that he explores there. But the writer... What he tries to do is he leaves no stone unturned in his quest to find meaning and satisfaction uh, in life. And given the fact that uh, uh, we only have a very short time on this earth, in 100 years' time, hardly anyone's going to remember us, we've got a short time on this earth, is there anything that we can do uh, that will make any difference in the world once we're gone? Point to our short existence on earth uh, so that we can say it matters uh, afterwards. Um, because the great problem that every single one of us faces is that death is the great spoiler to our life. Uh, it spoils our pursuits, it spoils our happiness, it spoils well just about everything that we want to do and try, it spoils. And time and time again, the writer comes to the conclusion, just in case we're going to miss it, I mean, he says it so often, it becomes a refrain all the way through the book, um, he says everything is meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. It's meaningless. It's ephemeral. It's temporary. It doesn't last. doesn't make sense. But he's no armchair commentator on the world. He's not just sitting around in his study trying to investigate all these things in his head. He actually is very practical. He goes out and he seeks and he hunts down every experience uh, that you can think of in life. Because you know what? He can. He has the resources. He tells us he's a king, he's extremely wealthy and so there are no limits placed on him to go out and to do these things and try these things and so 
He does. He goes and he cries. And so I just want to quickly take you to one passage um, and encourage you, hopefully after that, to read the rest of it. But one passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 where you see a taste, a, a part of, the, uh, of what he pursues. So he says there, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I mean, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the, man, of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work and this was the reward for all my labour. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Imagine if uh, the uni offered you a degree called the Bachelor of Pleasure Studies. But it wasn't just theoretical, in fact it was going to be immensely practical. No exams, you just had to simply go out and pursue whatever you thought would make you happy, that you would find pleasure in. And what's more, they said, uh, there's no limits to what you can do and we'll pay for it. Yeah? Uh, I checked there is no course like that, so I don't go hunting it down. Imagine if there was. I mean, this is the kind of thing that we would love to do. This guy is living the dream. He's doing the kinds of things that we can only dream about. But he lived it only to discover that the full satisfying life that we often dream about only ends up being hollow and empty at the end of the day. Now, I wish I had more time to kind of explore the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm just giving you a taste. I hope you go away and read more of it. Um, but I think the things that we discover in the book of Ecclesiastes aren't hard to, to verify in modern day uh, world today. Uh, we don't have to do a uni course in actual fact, to discover these things because we've got stories of the rich and famous who time and time and time again corroborate exactly what uh, the writer to the Ecclesiastes says. Uh, a little while ago, we had another king who had the same opportunities as the uh, writer of the Ecclesiastes, uh, rich beyond belief, famous, and what's more, he indulged himself with all the freedom, his wealth and the opportunities that he had uh, afforded him. Um, I'm talking about King Elvis Presley. Uh, he uh, lived like a king. At the height of his fame, uh, he had all-night parties where he went to an amusement park and book out the whole amusement park and he would uh, just throw wild parties. Uh, he'd do the same thing with movie theatres and people just longed 
to be a part of that party. There were wine, women, uh, drugs, freely available, and everyone was indulging, uh, and he certainly indulged in these things. Uh, people of him, uh, he lived life uh, without limits. In fact, there's one story where he asked to see the President of the United States in 1970. That same day, he was admitted into the President's office. Uh, he lived like a king. Um, everybody was more than happy to make him happy and do whatever uh, he wanted. But at the end of the day, uh, this is what he wrote about his life. It's, uh, he wrote it on a, a small piece of paper and it's actually on the wall if you go to his um, mansion in Gracelands. He said this, I'm the only person I know who can walk into a room full of people and be all alone. And he was asked a few weeks before he died, because he, you know, the journalist uh, found out that he, when he was a young man, he wanted to be rich, famous, and happy. Well, we all know that he's rich and famous, so he asked him, Are you happy? And his answer was, I'm as lonely as hell. He died unhappy, addicted to drugs, and lonesome. Uh, tennis star Boris Becker, at the height of his success, uh, said that he was actually on the brink of suicide. And he, he said this, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. And the successful uh, author, Jack Higgins, uh, he was the one who famously said, what would you want to know if you, uh, when you were a boy, now that you've all, what would you have wanted to know? He, he said uh, that when you climb to the top of the ladder, there is nothing there. Nothing there. The dream is empty and hollow, totally unsatisfying, and yet still we chase the dream. Because we can't think of another way to make ourselves happier, to have a fuller, richer, more meaningful life. Our desire for satisfaction is an itch that just demands that we scratch it. We've got to do something. And so we go on. Well, last week, as we looked at this topic, we, um, we, we looked at our deepest desires and longings and I made the claim uh, that there is another way to uh, satisfying those desires. The God of the Bible, in fact, has the, the power, he has the means and the desire to satisfy our desires. Uh, he has the ability to make our dream uh, reality. But I said there that right from the start we have a problem with God because we tend to think of him as this giant buzzkill in the sky. He is a massive killjoy. Uh, we've got this distorted picture of God who, that says to us and screams out to us that God doesn't want us to have fun, that God's ways, uh, well, they're boring and he doesn't want us to enjoy life. Uh, if we do it his way, we'll end up being bored to death. But that is not the picture that we get in the Bible. And I went one step further and said that what we dream after, what we chase after, what we uh, work hard to achieve, that, but we can't get, that God actually wants to give it to us on a plate free of charge. Simply give it to us. 
That's what we discover when we read uh, the Bible. We don't have to earn heaven. We don't have to work for it. God simply wants to give it to us because contrary to popular perception, that's the kind of God he is. He's simply a generous God. Now, often um, in the EU, uh, uh, we appeal to the mind because uh, it is required for Christian faith. You have to um, uh, understand and know something in order to really believe. You have to really believe that it's true um, in order to believe in something. And we want you to check out facts and investigate whether it's true or not and come to your mind uh, on these matters. And there's plenty of Christians around you who are more than willing to help you investigate uh, the claims there are, uh, in the intellectual basis of Christianity. It's there, it's strong. But the Bible also, uh, also tells us that it's a matter of the heart as well. It's not just a matter of the mind. That is, you have to really want it in order to be a Christian. You have to see the value and appreciate its value in order for you to actually make the choice to become a Christian. If you don't, then you won't. It doesn't matter how intellectually strong it is, if you don't think that it's desirable and worth it, you simply won't go for it. And so uh, today what I want to do is appeal to your heart on these matters and in particular for your desire to be satisfied, uh, to be happy, to live a life in peace and harmony uh, with others, with the world around you and ultimately uh, with God as well. Uh, the fullness of life that according to God, is deeply satisfying uh, where nothing can spoil it. And I'm appealing to you especially on the basis of our failed and miserable attempts to try and achieve satisfaction. I'm saying to you, why not check out another way? Because the ways that we're pursuing are not satisfying in the end. And I'm making this appeal because that is the way that God makes his appeal to us quite often in the Bible. Listen to these words from Isaiah 55 on the screen. Um, he says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on that which is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. And it's a frustrating end to a, a chapter of Israel's uh, life in the Old Testament where they have gone after what they wanted to only to end in misery after misery after misery. Chased hard, worked hard for, sought to earn but never got, in fact it was a, a train wreck. Uh, happening and God's saying, why don't you just come back to me and I'll give it all. So let me finish by turning to that story that we had read earlier to us in, in the Gospel of Mark 6. Um, cutting in and out. Yeah, sorry. Um, uh, we, we had read out to us earlier in Mark chapter 6 uh, to show us that Jesus is the one who can actually offer us uh, full satisfaction. Uh, so if we go uh, to Mark 6, I think that's on the next slide. Yep. Um, uh, Jesus is actually um, in an earlier part of the uh, couple of verses before. He's looking for a solitary place uh, so that he can spend some, some time with his disciples resting because he's had uh, lots of times with crowds everywhere. He's got, he just needs some time out. But what he discovers is as soon as he lands in this remote place, there's a massive crowd 
who run ahead waiting to greet him. And um, uh, uh, unlike us, um, who, who would get annoyed uh, with, with such a thing, um, Jesus, we're told in verse 34, actually has compassion on them uh, because uh, they were like sheep uh, without a shepherd there. Uh, so he starts teaching them many things. And the emphasis is on many things because he seems to go on and on and on for the whole day. The disciples think that Jesus is getting carried away because they can see a problem coming up that Jesus seems to be oblivious towards. Uh, he's, he's about to have a massive crowd control problem because there's no food, they've brought nothing with them and it's miles and miles away from the nearest Maccas or whatever it is they had back in those days. Uh, and so they can see that the people here are going to starve to death and it's all Jesus' fault. And so what they do is they decide to stage an intervention in verse 35 um, and explain the situation to Jesus in, in, in the hope that he'll come to his senses and send the crowd away. Listen to their, um, uh, verse 36. Send the people away so they can go buy something to eat. Get rid of the crowd, get rid of the problem. That's their solution. Uh, but Jesus doesn't go for it. In, instead, he turns the tables back onto them. You give them something to eat, uh, which the disciples are gobsmacked by uh, because there's no way they can afford to feed this vast quantity of people and they try to explain to Jesus how much it's going to cost them. Um, um, and, and you can almost get the sense that they're looking at Jesus like he's crazy. He's lost the plot. This intervention isn't going well, fellas. We're not sure what to do now kind of thing. And so Jesus uh, takes control of the situation and asks the disciples to go and track down how much food they have and they come back and report they've got five loaves of bread, just simple cakes of bread, back, you know, the flat bread of the Middle East, and uh, two fish. Not enough to even feed a few of the disciples really. Uh, but Jesus nevertheless tells the crowds to sit in groups of 50 and hundreds on green grass. He prays over the food starts dishing it out to the disciples who then dish it out to the people and he dishes out and he keeps on dishing out and then keeps on dishing out. Uh, and the important verse comes in verse 42. They all ate and were satisfied. And significantly, the disciples pick up 12 baskets full of leftovers. I mean, the thing about those 12 basketfuls would be a miracle in themselves from five loaves and two fish, but we're told that he also fed... 5,000 men, probably 10 to 20,000 people uh, in total. Now, I just want to kind of point to two things. There's lots of things that we can point to from this passage, but two things that I want you to, to see from this. Firstly, that Jesus is presented here as the good shepherd of his people. Remember how the story started with uh, Jesus having compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That is, God often refers to his people in the Bible uh, like sheep. Now, you may not like to be called sheep because when we think of sheep, they're um, stupid, weak animals, and they are. Um, uh, but that's not why God calls people, his people, sheep. One of the things that you discover when you read the Bible is that actually sheep were very valuable, precious animals to their owners. That's why we've got stories in the Bible where a shepherd will leave his 99 sheep behind and go after the one lost sheep. You think, oh, well, it's only 1% of your flock. What's the big difference? 
but sheep were valuable uh, to their um, uh, masters. In fact, there's these stories of shepherds um, who, who go after lambs fighting off wolves and bears and lions. I mean, it's a lamb. It's a small little thing. If it was me, I would just kind of say to the lamb, sorry, mate, um, you've got to take one for the team here. I'm going to take the opportunity to go and take the others with me. But then again, I don't value sheep. But the point is that God does value his people. He values them so much because the other characteristics he looks at is that sheep are uh, vulnerable without a shepherd. They're easy prey, not just for the wild animals, but also uh, for thieves and robbers, as as the Bible calls them. That is, um, there are corrupt leaders who look after people like sheep. And what they do is they fleece the sheep and they line their own pockets. Rather than look after the sheep, uh, they fleece them. They kill them. They abuse the power that they have over them. That's the story of the history of the world when it comes to leadership. But it was also the history of the people of Israel, the, the God's people. And so God promises a time would come where he would provide for them a good leader, a good shepherd who would look after them, give them what they need, use his power for their good, not for his own good, you see. And he would care for them as a proper leader should. And Jesus is the good shepherd of his people. Because the point of this story is that Jesus miraculously provides, he uses his power for the good of the people to supply their needs. In fact, not just by supplying their need, but by going overboard. Because that's the point of the story. He's just uh, like my mother. Um, uh, good Middle Eastern mothers. Uh, uh, if you've got a Middle Eastern mother, you'd know what I mean here. Because when she prepares food, she kind of prepares just in case an army might pop around for, for lunch. And uh, she spreads it out. And at the end of the meal, I'm often thinking, have we even made a dent on all the vast quantities of food that she's laid out for us? She doesn't just supply us with a little bit of food, just enough for the day. It's, it's overboard. It's over the top. And we're often making fun about that. But Jesus is just like that here, you see. He goes overboard. He is the shepherd of Psalm 23. I think we've got Psalm 23 on the slide. Who makes the people lie down in green pastures and who feeds them so that their cup overflows. You know, the image of a cup overflowing is you, you've got a goblet, you pour wine into it and it keeps you keep pouring even though the, the wine's overflowing. Why do you do that? It's, an, it's a symbol of extravagance, of going over the top. You know, I've got so much that I can afford to waste as much, you know, because I want you to have as much as you possibly can in your cup. You can't actually fill the cup more than it's full. The image uh, kind of points you to that extravagant. And that's the image here, or in case of the baskets at least overflowing, you see in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Because the story um, at, the, at the beginning is meant to remind us, you see, of, of Israel when they were in the wilderness and how they were fed miraculously while they wandered around the wilderness with this heavenly bread called manna. And they would go out and they would pick it up and they would use it for food. And we're told in Exodus 16 that they always went out and they... Uh, didn't gather too much nor too little. It was just right. Not the cereal, but the quantity. Um, and, um, and, uh, uh, but Jesus here in the story, it 
does something similar, bread out of nothing, but it's too much. It's not just enough, it's too much. Because it's also meant to pick up the Old Testament promise where God in the future would provide for the people once again, but this time it would be extravagant, over-the-top affair, a feast. And we read about this last week, a feast of rich fare and of rich wine, wine, well-preserved. It was going to be so extravagant and it would be forever full-on food, and feasting forever and ever with friends. We, we looked at that last week, so I'm not going to go uh, over it a, a, again. Um, this is the point of all of Jesus' miracles. I hope you can see, because Jesus doesn't come along and just do party tricks, you know, to kind of show off with the, the miracles that he's doing. Hey, look at what I can do. Um, they're actually uh, called signs in John's Gospel because they're pointing to something. And what they're pointing to is that greater reality, that promise that God is promising his people in the future. So that when Jesus heals the sick, he's pointing to the time when God promises to undo all the sickness and pain and sorrow there is in life, where people would be right, uh, put right. When he, um, uh, when he casts out demons, when he performs those exorcisms, it's pointing to the time when, when God would do away with evil once and for all, forever. And when he raises people from the dead, he's pointing to the time when death itself will be defeated. And here, this feeding miracle is pointing to the time where God promises to fulfil our desires, the desires of our heart. He's giving us a taste of the future promise uh, that is in store for God's people. In John 10 where Jesus is actually described as the Good Shepherd, he tells us that he has come so that his sheep might have life and have it to the full. Jesus promises to give us full, abundant life. Probably not straight away. In fact, Jesus never promises a picnic now. He promises a full-on party later. But for now, life is not a picnic if you're a Christian. Um, but I do think that even now Jesus offers us a better life, a more satisfying life than the kind of life that we often chase after and dream about and can do on our own. But the final thing to say is that, and it comes very clearly in the rest of uh, Mark's Gospel as well as John's Gospel and in fact in the, in the passage of, of John, is that Jesus is dying for us to have the full life. In fact, he dies so that we might have that full life. And normally uh, the point is that sheep are killed for their owners, um, but not the good shepherd. In fact, it's the good shepherd who dies for his sheep. Jesus dies on the cross to bring to heaven. Remember how I said God actually wants to offer us heaven on a plate. In fact, what we discover is that it costs God everything. It costs Jesus his life, but it costs us nothing. In fact, we're the least deserving, but God gives it to us anyway at his total cost. Because the wonderful thing about God that we discover in the Bible is that God's desire for us, his desire to satisfy us, is actually stronger than even our desires to be satisfied. Uh, God loves us more than even we can love anything, life itself. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead uh, um, shows us that he actually has that power 
to bring about that wonderful reality and he will use that power for us one day where he will raise us to that wonderful reality that he is preparing for his people. Now let me take you back to that verse, verse 42 in in Mark chapter 6. The people all ate and were satisfied, fully satisfied with an abundance of leftovers. And friends, I want to appeal to you, um, don't you want to be satisfied? Don't you have that longing for satisfaction? Well, Jesus is offering you full satisfaction with great extravagance that will go on forever and ever where nothing will spoil the party. Why chase after the things that everybody seems to know are unattainable? God says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you have no money, come, buy and eat. Why spend yourself on things that don't satisfy? Why not come to Jesus? Because only he can truly satisfy you. My friends, I do really hope and pray that you would consider uh, what I have to say today and at least check it out for yourself and investigate uh, further if you want. But in case some of you know and want to turn to Jesus, now I'm going to say a prayer, a short prayer, which I encourage you to say in the quietness of your own heart because Jesus is able to hear you and it's a prayer where we decide to turn to, to Jesus so that he can satisfy us. If that's your prayer, then please uh, pray with me now. But let's all bow our heads at least and pray. Father God, please forgive me for my ill thoughts about you, for not turning to you sooner. Thank you that you offer to fully satisfy us with good things forever. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die to deliver on that promise. I turn to you now. Please accept me, forgive me and change me so that I gladly live with Jesus as my good shepherd. Amen. Now friends, if that was your prayer, then can I say welcome to the family. But um, what I also want to say is that we all need help on our journey to keep going uh, with Jesus and we in the EU would love to help you in that. Just simply talk to your friend who brought you or come down, talk to me or talk to someone else in the EU that you know and they would love to help you to keep going in that journey. Uh, but take the opportunity while you can. Uh, secondly, let me invite you to um, afternoon tea um, and I'd love to, to chat to you about any questions that you might have and I hope to see you uh, next week as well. God bless.